and welcome to That Implementation Science Podcast, the show that aims to reduce the innovation to implementation gap to 16 and a half years. I'm your host, Mike Pullman, and on today's show, co-host Kevin King will interview me. Apologies in advance to anyone who's tired of hearing us talk about our work. Honestly, your time might be better spent watching old reruns of Webster. But if you do stick around, we'll talk about equity in education, the unintended consequences of implementation strategies, the ethics and obligations of conducting community-based research, and then Kevin will quiz me on my knowledge of rock climbing. I think you're really going to suffer through today's show. Without further ado, let's get started. Right, folks, welcome to that implementation science podcast. I'm your co-host Kevin King. Our glorious and illustrious host Mike Pullman is out on vacation, so I'm here solo doing an interview today with our special guest. Go ahead and introduce yourself. I'm Mike Pullman. What switcheroo, everyone? We are super happy today to have Mike Pullman, PhD, um, our as our guest, and I'm going to be interviewing Mike solo. So wish me luck. Um, let me start with a brief introduction. Mike Pullman leads the Smart Center um, Data Analytic Core. He's also part of actually. What, what the fuck? Where do you work? Tell me what you want to work. I just pulled this from your website. I have a bio. Sure, man. Sure, yeah. No, I'm a methodologist. I I'm, I work at several centers. So I'm at the School Mental Health Assessment Research and Training Center at the University of Washington. I'm also at the uh, University of Washington Alacrity Center or UWAC. Um, and I'm also at the University of Washington Impact Center, which isn't an acronym. I just freshly got off of the University of Washington Optics Center. I am also part of the uh, University of Washington Creative Lab, uh, where we study, study digital mental health. And um, I feel like there's one more center, and I'm blanking on it. So we'll come back to that. That's all right. Now, the real question is, is the center that you're not thinking of, is it an acronym or not an acronym? So I think we're 50-50 so far. Right, right. I feel like it is an acronym. All right, it's I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna come back to this. That's all right. So um, I just pulled this from your website. So Mike's research is focused on community-based and participatory approaches in cross-system collaborative efforts to serve youth and families with complex needs, with an emphasis on education and mental health. He also conducts research on racial and ethnic disproportionality and discipline and the commercial sex trafficking of minors. He provides methodological leadership on multiple projects within the Smart Center with a particular interest, and I would add across all centers that he works with, acronyms or not, with a particular interest in illuminating the impact of policy decisions through longitudinal approaches to data analysis of large-scale administrative databases, and on a smaller scale, implementation and dissemination efforts. His latest efforts have focused on identifying the possible unforeseen consequences and outcomes associated with implementation strategies. Mike, I'm super happy to be doing this interview with you today. I've known you for over a decade. And I have to say, I still don't know anything about the research that you do because <laughs> every time you start talking to me about it, I just kind of tune out. Yeah. So here is a good, well, we scheduled an hour, but we spent the first 10 minutes um, talking about other things in our lives, which uh, we will not be airing today on the podcast. So we now have 48 minutes to learn everything there is to know about everything you've ever done in your career. So let's go okay. fast. That, that should be more than sufficient. Right. I figure we'll go for about 15 minutes and then we can just spend the rest of the time bullshitting. So, yeah. yeah. Um, well, and, and hang on. You said that you, you tune out whatever I'm working on. And it's funny. I must do the same thing because when you read that, um, that bio of me, I'm like, man, I need to update that. There's some things I'm not working on anymore there. And there's new things I'm working on too. So, yeah. That is the, uh, that is the bane of putting a bio on a website because then that website stays there for eternity. And you, <laughs> the only time you update it is when you're confronted with it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think we need to figure out a way to have dynamic uh, biographies or just ban them from the internet entirely. <laughs> so let's, Mike, let's start at the beginning. Tell us, uh, our, tell us, tell me, tell our audience about your background and training. You, for example, were trained as a community psychologist. Now, I looked up in preparation for this interview, I looked up community psychologist in Webster's Dictionary, and all I got was an error page. So my first question <laughs> is, how dare you imitate a real psychologist, Mike? Yeah. How dare you? No, for real. How dare you? Um, 
as okay, as a follow up to that, um, Dad, tell us tell, what is community psychology. Tell us about your training in community psychology. Yeah, sure. Well, so I'm not actually a community psychologist. Really, it all goes back to fourth grade. Miss Nancy Jacobs, my math teacher. Oh no, no, no. Dumb, actually, dumb, dumb. I so actually, I would. I do want to go back to. I got my master's degree at Portland State University. So I had been working after after I got my undergraduate degree. I was working at a residential treatment center. I did that for a year and a half. It's the hardest job I've ever had. I think I made eight dollars and twenty five cents an hour. And uh, then I went to get my master's degree. While I was doing that, actually, I worked at a um, Montessori school as a substitute teacher. It was a very different experience between this residential treatment center and the Montessori school. Um, and I think really, uh, I learned some things that I think are really important in terms of what I brought to my research, and maybe we'll circle back to, to that later. But I got my master's degree at Portland State University, and then I got hired as a research coordinator there, and I stuck around there for six years working on systems of care research as a, as an, a program evaluator. So at the Regional Research Institute, I was under the tutelage of um, Dr. Nancy Korloff and Barbara Friesen, and they were both in the School of Social Work. And they were incredibly dedicated to participatory action research and to community-based participatory research. I had never heard these terms before. And frankly, while I worked for them, I never heard those terms then either. Instead of talking about the theory, instead of using, you know, uh, $10 words uh, to illustrate what it was they were doing. They just went out and did the work. They mm. hired members of the community. They were completely passionate about not stigmatizing anyone, not labeling anyone. So we hired caregivers of children that had serious emotional disturbances, mm -hmm. which is what we called it back then, to work on these mental health projects with us as full like collaborative partners. Mm. And I was kind of thrown into this after having a master's degree in psychology, which you know, if we frankly think about it, like psychology, especially back in the late 90s, was largely focused on labeling people right, exactly. and contributing to stigma and really blaming parents mm -hmm. for the emotional problems that their children were having, rather than thinking about ways to support parents. Right. Um, so it was a very, very different paradigm for me, and one that I really grew to love and embrace. And I did a lot of political activism back then, and mm -hmm. so I was working with sort of people like in the streets protesting and the participatory action research, even though I didn't know what was called that, fit in with that really well. And I was right. lucky enough to then meet Craig Ann Hefflinger at Vanderbilt University, who recruited me to go there for my PhD. And that's where I really got more immersed into you know what we call community psychology. The program at Vanderbilt is called Community Research and Action. So actually, it was the Community Research and Action Program. So okay. uh, the acronym was CRAP. So I got my PhD in CRAP. <laughs> none of the at faculty. least you've been consistent throughout your whole career, yes, Mike. It's true. And none of the faculty <laughs> at, uh, within the CRAP program thought that that joke was funny at all. But all of the students did. All of the students. And it's... At Vanderbilt, it was a very different experience. So actually, Craig Ann was very dedicated as well to really working in the community. But some of the other training I got, I would say, was much more higher level. So that's when I finally got an opportunity to read uh, Paulo Freire and um, other writers who really focused on the philosophy, oftentimes, of mm -hmm. participatory action research, community research in action. Um, and so it was really wonderful to be immersed in that theory. But Frankly, I would say Vanderbilt didn't do the best job in the world of actually doing the research. And this yeah. is an interesting dichotomy that I've seen in, in academics. Oftentimes, those people that are sort of held up as the sort of luminaries in the field that do all the writing aren't actually oftentimes doing the work all that well. Again, I wouldn't say this about Craig Ann Heffernier. I thought she was wonderful. And I really did appreciate my, my program. It was great. But it's almost like if you're really, really doing it well, you're not talking about it. And if you're yeah. talking about it a lot, oftentimes you're not really, really doing it well. Yeah. What do you think? Where do you think is the missing link? I think a lot of people can intuitively appreciate the uh, that notion. Um, but I also think it's it's maybe hard to actually grok like w w when you're, you know, if you're doing it really well, what are you doing that theorizers are missing? Well, I think the Academy rewards people who are, that are able to shout loudest in the echo chamber. Mm -hmm. You look at what sort of incentives we get for promotion. It's mm -hmm. journal article citations, grant proposals, which come from journal article citations right. um, on and on. It's not changing laws. 
Uh, it's not forming community partnerships and helping an organization work better with its the participants that it's serving. It's not empowering communities to go out and advocate for their own change. None of those things are rewarded. And so those people who are in the academy and who do it best are not doing oftentimes those things that actually create the most change. Right. In um, so I've tried, in my career, I've tried in my career to have some balance between those two mm-hmm. things. Yeah, you're, you're kind of making an argument that there's a confounding, there's a third variable explanation that people who theorize about the doing, um, who are able to write about it, get grants to try it out, there may be something about persuasiveness, sort of, yeah, as you said, sort of about shouting it loudest, you know, um, maybe in the, to be pithy about it, the TED talkification of research topics where, you know, you often find out the things that people who are popular and people who make, you know, sort of write the pop pop science books about it, you know, their research is actually not that strong. Sometimes they even turns out they fake their data. Um, (laughs) I'm not saying about these community, you know, participatory action research people, but just that general phenomenon of sometimes the most famous, well-known people are good at communicating. And maybe that confounds, you know, um, that's a confound that doesn't actually relate to the quality of the science that they're doing, or, or in your case, the quality of the intervention and community organizing that's work required. What do you think is something that, you know, maybe those luminaries miss? Sort of what do you learn from actually being on the ground um, and actually bringing in, you know, community partners and, you know, um, you know, in your case, the, the parents of the children with emotional um, difficulties. What are the things that you feel like sometimes people miss uh, for, who don't have that real world experience? Or what do you learn when you do get that, that sort of real world experience? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say some of the biggest aspects are that sometimes it's our approach to research and evaluation is just a bad fit for the needs of the specific community. We end up in situations where we intentionally or unintentionally guide research questions in directions that are more publishable, um, but maybe uh, less practical, or we get organizations into situations where they're collecting, spending a lot of time collecting a lot of data from their clients, but they don't know how to use that data. And sometimes I think even we don't know how to use that data in really practical ways. It's like, oh, okay, now I know my client's uh, demographics and the basic understanding of how they're maybe changing over time. But what does that mean in terms of what kinds of services I need to provide or how I need to provide them differently? Mm-hmm. And oftentimes the real questions that community providers have sometimes aren't answerable within that organization. Oftentimes unanswerable unless you have a really large scale research study, you know what right. I mean? I feel like sometimes there's just a bad fit and that communication can be can be difficult. And it goes the other way as well. Like I've oftentimes mm-hmm. worked with researchers and had a hard time explaining to them that the specific research question that they're wanting to ask isn't really answerable with the data that we would be able to collect. It's just kind of an unfeasible, impractical mm-hmm. question. And so, it, you know, it's not only community partners that struggle with this. Um, I think it goes both ways. Right. You know, and and part of what you implied there, one of the things that you you sort of said there that struck me was this idea that of collecting all this data, um, you know, I'm a methodologist, you know, at least in my second life, and I I love lots of data, but I could also see if, you know, data for the purpose, data is great for the purposes of publications, data is purpose, you know, great for the purposes of grants, it's great for students to analyze, it's great to sort of theorize and learn things about the world, but I could see just collecting more data is not necessarily good for, you know, community agency or community partner. And I could see the other thing, the comment that you made that struck me was that sometimes you might want to collect a whole bunch of data that they could never sustain on their own without a big research grant. And that to me strikes as a sort of mismatch of implementation. Like if they need a huge data collection and analysis infrastructure to help them do their jobs better, you know, unless they're sort of a huge organization, there's no way they're going to have that and be able to sustain that anyway. So it's almost like your academic solution is infeasible for, mm-hmm. for their world, you know, even if it did meet their goals, which mm-hmm. you're saying also often it doesn't. Yeah. It, yeah, that's true. So I work with an organization, I work with several organizations, but uh, I work with one called uh, REST, which is the uh, call, uh, stands for Real Escape from the Sex Trade. Mm-hmm. And they got a uh, couple of small grants that I worked with them on to uh, provide additional residential living support services and employment services. And as part of those grants, you know, they're required to collect a bunch of data. So they set up a whole, they, they adapted their existing data system mm-hmm. to add all these surveys 
days and then longitudinal time points every three months. They've bent over backwards to reach out and bring people in. And all this is really great and, and fit uh, the needs of the evaluation really, really well. But now they're kind of so now the money is gone, but they but now they have this infrastructure, this data right. infrastructure, and they want to continue that. But the real question they need to ask themselves, and I'm kind of trying to help them with right now, is how do you continue that in a way that's actually your your there's some cost effectiveness there? Right. Like are you throwing money uh, at something that just happens to exist that maybe isn't useful for you anymore, or maybe it is, and how do we how do we get to a point to make it useful? What extra money do we need to put into it to get to a point where it's useful? Um, and I'm a little chagrined as well because I know I've kind of played a part in this machine. Right. And I'm hoping I haven't put them down, you know, steered them down the wrong path. And that just you know, needs to emerge via conversations with them about what's important to them. But right, yeah. right. So again, it's that is that that interchange between the researcher and the agency. You know, figuring out what what are their goals and how do you help them reach their goals that are important to them without superimposing your own. Yeah, on top of yeah. that, it sounds like a that um, that sounds like a sort of a core value of uh, of you and the research that you do. Yeah, yeah. So one of your lines of research um, has to do with disproportionality in school discipline. Tell us about that. Yeah. So you know, I haven't been working on that nearly as much recently, but I I wish this got a little bit more attention. We tried to get fun, some funding for this, and it is a little bit weird, I have to admit, to be you know a white man in in this field. I've worked on racial and ethnic disproportionality issues mm-hmm. for years and years and years. I think probably like even when I was uh, working my doctoral program, I worked with the um, state of Tennessee on their, it was called Disproportionate Minority Contact Committee for Mm -hmm. in Juvenile Justice. And even going back to uh, Portland State University, as when I was a research coordinator there, we produced some research in around racial and ethnic disproportionality. But like in school discipline, like this just goes back decades and decades, really massive disparities between white youth and students of color in, um, you know, the numbers of kids, proportion of kids that are being sent to the office and Mm -hmm. punished for different infractions. So we, in working with Clay Cook and Eric Bruns and Aaron Lyon and uh, Mylene Duong was a massive influence in this in this project. We got an IES or Institute of Education Sciences grant mm-hmm. to develop uh, a partnership with Seattle Public Schools, and out of that partnership, we developed a number of tools. One of the most important tools that came out of that project was um, ultimately something that we called the DDAS or the Disparities in Discipline Assessment for Schools tool. And what we did is we identified um, multiple evidence-based reasons why or determinants of mm-hmm. uh, disproportionate and discipline. I guess in the implantation field, we would call these determinants. So these are things like parent-teacher-student relationships, uh, data-based decision-making, uh, school-based policies, teacher's level of use of uh, proactive and reactive disciplinary techniques. Mm-hmm. And we developed this really awesome tool that schools could use and then determine, okay, so like we're high in these levels, low in these levels. And then we developed a menu that they could then look at after uh, assessing themselves. And from that menu, they could choose from a number of evidence-based interventions. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a, that's promising actually a little bit more than actually exists, because frankly, there's not a lot of really good evidence-based interventions to reduce mm-hmm. racial and ethnic disproportionality in discipline. But our theory was that, okay, if you pick one that's actually fits best with the, with the school needs and mm-hmm. with what the school is poised to do, like maybe sometimes low-hanging fruit is the way to go or where, where there's political will to approach... Yeah. That like if you make that fit better between the intervention and the need, that you're actually more likely to impact disproportionality and discipline. Now we've tried to get funding from IES multiple times, and we finally gave up after our third round mm-hmm. to make that tool even better, and then to mm-hmm. actually test whether or not it works, and to pull data from schools across the nation to really see whether or not our even our like multi-factor mm. um, understanding of the determinants even fits really really well or not right. because we pulled all these factors from a wide variety of different kind of sources uh so i was so excited about this and would love to continue continue working on it however like also hmm i know i'm not going to say this in the right way 
So I'm going to try to say this as best I can, and I hope yeah. people kind of understand. Being a, a white dude in this kind of period of racial uh, reckoning who has been working on these issues for years and years and years, but also recognizes that I might be taking up space in, mm-hmm. in an area that maybe I should be playing more of a supportive role and less of a leadership role. That has been sort of striking me more and more and has actually led me to kind of like focus less and less on this mm-hmm. unless I think somebody came in and wanted to lead it and then I could support them. I don't um, know, Mike. I always feel like people appreciate when white men step up on behalf of uh, <laughs> and, and sort of really take the lead with our experiences as an oppressed minority. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. No, I, I, I think you said that really well. I, I, I fully appreciate that, you know, our identity, I, I think I can just say as a white man, you know, the notion that my identity is important and to think about sort of my positionality, you know, I feel like I'm playing catch up, I guess I'm saying I've, <laughs> I've grown to appreciate that so much more in recent years. And I, I think that's a completely reasonable stance to take to sort of think, hey, maybe I, you know, maybe I should step back, maybe I can be a cheerleader and support other people doing this work, you know, we can be often blind to our biases and not know even with all good intentions, and you know, and I think you clearly here have the best of intentions. Um, sometimes that doesn't matter, um, or sometimes that could still leave us, you know, open to blind spots and sort of, um, it, it, you know, maybe it's helpful to support and cheerlead uh, other people. L- let me ask you though, you did a bunch of work with this, from my understanding, in with public schools. What did you? What have you learned? Maybe just in general, what have you learned from working with with public school systems? Um, you know, towards, I guess, in general, about what are effective and ineffective ways to, you know, make improvements in children's well-being. Yeah. Hmm, I'm wondering exactly how strong I should be with my language here. And I think I'm going to be really strong. You know, they say that the classic quote for public schools is that it's the great equalizer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say that's completely false. Uh, and that it's actually the great reifier. Like public schools mm. exist to continue the uh, inequitable system that we have. And that's as easy as, you know, you could walk into Seattle Public School here in the South End and just look around in terms of the paint job, the building infrastructure, what sorts of before school and after school activities are available. And even oftentimes like teacher experience and expertise mm-hmm. and then walk into a school out at like Mercer Island mm-hmm. and look around and it is completely different. It's two completely different systems. And if you do a ranking, which I've, which I've done, if you look mm-hmm. at the average house price and the average ranking of the school, it's one-to-one. Like the best mm-hmm. schools supposedly are in the richest areas. It should be the opposite really in terms right. of what kids need. Like those kids in the poorest neighborhoods should have the best facilities because they need it the most. Right. And yet it's, it's not that way. And I think oftentimes kids are set up to um, experience and expect that they will not get the highest quality treatment and there's no way that they can't internalize that of course that happens or the other way around people expect that privilege when they grow up in schools that provide that kind of wealth Mm -hmm. um so i think those are some of the major drastic things and we and we see it too you can also like in seattle public schools itself you can look at the proportion of um students that receive free and reduced price lunch and the proportion of students that pass their standardized tests and it's like it's like one-to-one i think we actually did this a while back in the correlation at a school level not at an individual student level and that's really important to keep in mind but at the school level, I think the correlation was like like 0.9. You don't get those kinds of correlations in social sciences, right. you know. You mean but the correlation between between the uh, percentage of kids who are uh, have free free and reduced mm-hmm. lunch and the proportion of kids who are passing or oh. I guess failing their standardized tests mm-hmm. that they take. Yeah. Right. And, and just for our listeners um, who might not live in the Seattle area, Mercer Island is one of our richer schools, or richer school districts in the area, and the south end of Seattle. Um, is one of the lower income uh, areas also, you know, probably not coincidentally um, due to historic redlining and historic and structural racism, Absolutely. also one of the more, um, uh, one of the neighborhoods and, and areas of Seattle where there's more uh, children of color. 
Yeah, yeah. And it is weird to me, too. I don't know when school busing ended. I haven't looked into this when Mm -hmm. desegregation ended, because we've just at some point we've given up on this as a society about desegregation. And it's Mm -hmm. um, and again, it's de facto desegregation or de facto segregation. Right. And that's really what we see here. And you look at the schools and it's just it's exactly that way. Uh, Let's go into a new topic. Lately, you've been really interested in this idea of unforeseen consequences of implementation strategies. You're calling them ripple effects in your research. What led you to, to start pursuing this idea? Yeah, no. So I love I love the idea of ripple effects, which are unintended consequences. They can be positive or negative. Mm-hmm. And they're also, the way we define ripple effects, they're specific types of unintended consequences that can also be outcomes that are more important to people other than the specific uh implementer, researcher, or client who's receiving the service, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe like in, like a caregiver of a child who has mental health uh, mm-hmm. issues rather than the child themselves or whatever. Um, and so uh, they're, they're outcomes that um, come in from basically different perspectives or that were never expected to occur in the first place. And again, they can be positive, negative, or even, or even neutral. Can you give um, some examples? Yeah, so some examples that we have, uh, one of the most commonly kind of talked about examples is uh, when you implement like measurement-based care systems, right? So maybe you're rewarding mental health providers or at least um, maybe not even rewarding, uh, but providing providers with a tool so that they can see how their clients are doing across specific areas. Now, you can only measure certain areas. So maybe you're just measuring the the PHQ, like a depression Mm -hmm. measure. Well, we found that that can results in um, what we call like a, a myopic view of clients that they're only mm-hmm. focused, laser focused on that one outcome mm-hmm. when clients usually come in with a broad array of outcomes and right. problems that are that they're facing. Um, and so that's a common ripple effect that's talked about. Uh, that really anything, you know, we say it's nice, anything that gets measured gets done, right? right. But maybe that means that things that aren't measured aren't getting done. Right. <laughs> and it's prioritizing sometimes what may be like dozens of important things to look at but it's only prioritizing a few things. That's a classic ripple effect that happens. And only because, again, because you're measuring it, you're focusing in all, too much and just sort of forgetting to, you know, um, uh, zoom out to the broader yeah, picture. Yeah. And let me uh, actually, let me give you an example yeah. of a positive ripple effect. Let's say you teach a client or work with a client about uh, relaxation or mm-hmm. about uh, cognitive reframing. We actually know this happens from client reports. They'll go out and teach that to their parents or mm-hmm. their friends or whoever. And so you have a ripple effect from, and these are actually specifically called spillover effects and has mm-hmm. been documented in the research, where you have like an intervention that actually results in a nice impact. Uh, impact on other people who weren't the intended uh, recipient of that intervention. Now, if I understand, if I understand correctly, this took a little while for you to get this kind of research off the ground. What did it, what do you think it took in terms of to convince people that this was something worth studying? Well, it is an interesting story. And it didn't take a while, actually. We got funded really well, uh, highly on the first round, and then it like went right away. Okay. But there was initially a little bit of pushback from our funders uh, before it was reviewed, who felt that they didn't, especially in the political climate at the time, uh, which was, you know, this was during the Trump presidency, they felt that they didn't want to fund anything that might imply that there are unintended consequences of their funding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. I can understand that. They were really afraid about the sort of the political fallout that might yeah. result from this. Uh, and I can understand that, sure. Um, as a scientist and sort of a rational thinker, I want to believe that like these won't, you know, our findings wouldn't be used for sort of nefarious political purposes, but that would be an unintended consequence, ironically, of our ironically. research. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I, uh, I recall early in my training, it was drilled into me that you never, ever, ever want your research to end up being spoken about on the floor of Congress because it's almost <laughs> never a good thing when that happens. Yes, so, yes. you know, in my in my own career studying alcohol and drug abuse, um, you know, I probably will never write a paper saying, "Hey, you know, it turns out marijuana is probably pretty good for you, and we shouldn't really worry about it." Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You well, know, you know, it's always funny when they come out with I can't even remember what it's called, but the you know, Congress every year, mm-hmm. right wing members of Congress come out with some like, "Here's the awards for stupid, you know, stupid studies," yes. and they cite them. But I always love there's oftentimes counter reactions where people go into it and look at the specific details for each one and describe it 
in a paragraph instead of a headline. Right. And you're like, oh no, actually that makes sense to fund that. And that one right. makes sense to fund that. And that right. would make, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's rare that, that they're coming up with actual instances of research waste, yeah. fraud or abuse. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, what, are, what are some of the interesting things you've learned from this research um, about ripple effects? What are, what are some of the things you, you've uncovered so far? And, and then also where is this going? Do you think? Yeah. So a lot of this foundation, this work was really just trying to set a foundation for a communication or I'm sorry, a conversation within implementation science mm -hmm. to really just try to heighten awareness of this. What I'd really love is for interventionists and researchers when they're planning uh, implementations to um, think about possible ripple effects, to put that into their logic model, their theory of change, their causal mm -hmm. pathway diagram, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. um, for the initial sort of implementation um, uh, planning that they're doing. And we actually have a website, too. Uh, it's specific to mental health services, but I think it would be useful for people of all types to just look at. The website is departments, actually, deps.washington.edu slash ripple hyphen effects. And on this website, what's kind of cool about it uh, is that we've built a tool. And actually, there's still a couple things I needed to fix the tool. But we've built a tool where if you're planning to do a study, you can walk through it and you can click on who, what type of uh, implementation strategy you're going to be using. And you can click on the, the roles that you're most interested in possibly having ripple effects occur to them. So therapists, policymakers, caregivers, youth clients. And you then uh, get to see what possible ripple effects may occur for those roles, for those implementation strategies, based solely on <laughs> the brainstormed opinions of the, you know, participants in our study. Now, That's I recognize cool, there's a lot of weaknesses here. Like, there are a ton of weaknesses here. But the idea is that this is a thinking tool, right? This isn't this isn't saying these ripple effects are definitely going to occur, mm -hmm. et cetera. This is saying that if you're going to be doing collaboration with advisory boards and work groups or EBP's implementation in a novel setting or mandating change, that these are the possible ripple effect categories and then the possible specific ripple effects that may occur. Um, so in this case, you know, it may be that, um, you know, by doing uh, uh, collaboration with advisory groups, mm -hmm that you are actually improving clients, the uh, client's actual skills and using eBPIs or their confidence and self-efficacy in using eBPIs, mm -hmm. uh, which is probably not something that like you would normally like try to be impacting. Um, right. That. So yeah. it's almost like giving people a you know, menu of things to be thinking about, be thinking when, about exactly. when they're planning. Yeah. All yeah. right. Um, so let, let's shift gears again. You've been a methodologist yeah. for many people's projects for many years. In fact, there have been many times where I've benefited because you were too busy and somebody needed to somebody to help them with their data analysis or give them advice second on data analysis. Best, oh, second best. Always hiring me as second best, yes. Um, <laughs> so maybe could tell our audience the path um, that you took to become this, you know, you're, you're both a, a, an impressive and important substantive researcher, but you're also sort of methodologist gun for hire. Um, tell us about the path that led you here. Oh, man. I don't know the path that led me here. That's a good question. I don't love solely being in a leadership role. I'm frankly, I don't have sharp elbows. I like collaborating with fun people who have interesting and creative ideas and bringing my own creative and fun and interesting ideas to the table. I don't have that type A kind of personality necessarily. I guess I have the type A part of the personality, the anxiety part, but not, <laughs> but not the, uh, but not the like forcing hopefully not forcing my own sort of way on others. And so it's just kind of fun. It's just a fun thing to do to like work with others and to think about methods. I love research. I love uh, trying to think about ways that we can answer interesting question questions in a feasible manner. And so it's just kind of, I don't know, I've just kind of fallen into that. It's never been anything that was intentional. Probably yeah. spraying out of some of my early work as a program evaluator, frankly, where you're working again with community partners and helping them think about methods to answer their questions. It's like, okay, now I'll work with researchers and think, help them think about ways to answer their questions. Well, so thinking about your that journey that you've had, what do you do differently now when you work as a methodologist as part of a team than what you did when you started? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. 
I think two of the most important things that methodologists need to do, and they seem so basic. The first one is like helping anyone, researchers or community partners, like define their research question in a in an answerable way. Sometimes people are just so vague, even PhD level PIs that have decades of experience. I don't know how many times they've asked me a thing, and I'm like, well, but what's your research question? And then they say something, and I'm like, but wait, what's your research question? And then they say something, I'm like, but wait, what's yeah. your research question? And then once they get that research question, I say, well, but what's your logic for that? Like, what's your rationale? Let's draw out a theory mm-hmm. of change. One of the things we're working on right now is actually helping people develop causal pathway diagrams, mm-hmm. which is looking at the mechanisms right. for why an implementation strategy may work. And that kind of approach, also, you know, logic models do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of approach, I think, is really, really essential. It's hard to hold all these, like, multiple things in our minds. And I think oftentimes people have something they want to do, but they don't really have a research question, and they don't really know why they want to link it. It's kind of almost like mm-hmm. a random act of intervention. Mm-hmm. Actually, this led to my like out, that this unintended consequences stuff too. Yeah. Like um, these this, these random acts of interventions, rather than really being thoughtful about the rationale for why you want to do something and why you expect it to have those impacts. And I think that's one of the most important things that any methodologist can can do with any PI they're working with. So, so that's great. You answered my follow up questions. Why do you think people get there? But I think you're what you're saying is that there are people who sort of you know, maybe uh, certainly reasonably want to enact change and want to do something. And maybe they get so focused on the doing something that they don't think about sort of, well, okay, how, how is this going to work? What are we, what are we actually trying to target? Mm-hmm. What are we actually trying mm-hmm. to affect here? Well, right. Well, I mean, I think, I think the reason why we have unintended consequences, you know, unintended consequences is we have an innovation bias. I think mm-hmm. everyone yeah. walks in with this and we need to be really honest about this. And it's why we result, why we have things like P hacking. And it's why we, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Because everyone walks in, they want to do something. And the reason they want to do it is they think it works. Right. right. But they don't always know why they think it might work. And it can lead to sort of disastrous consequences unless they really begin to break down that rationale. You know, and you actually answered something I was thinking about earlier today. I was just ruminating on why people are so dismissive of replications or can be so dismissive of replications when to me, showing that you can find get the same finding twice, whether whether you're directly replicating or, you know, replicating and extending or generalizing, you know, to uh, to me, it's fascinating because, wow, we have more data. We can see this in this other sample of people or with this related measure or, or you know, boy, it's just like there's we have more confirmation with this initial, you know, uh, for this initial finding that I would always personally consider tentative. But I think what you're saying is when we have innovation bias, people take the first positive finding as, oh, we learned this and we don't need to learn anything more about it. So mm-hmm. we're done. And mm-hmm. so you showing it again, well, we already knew that. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah. I think that, that, you know, I mean, that maybe that's putting it a little bit strongly and a little bit in a, you know, a pithy fashion, but I think that yeah. that makes a lot of sense from that perspective. Well, I've said this before on the show. I mean, I do feel like if implementation science cast itself as one aspect of replication science, which yeah. I don't think is a thing, but maybe it is. I, I think, I think there would be a lot to learn there. I think oftentimes mm-hmm. we feel like, you know, it's like, well, why didn't this implementation work? We had this evidence-based practice, and we don't oftentimes think of it in terms of like, oh, well, these are replication issues. Right. Maybe, and is this a conceptual replication? Is this a direct replication? Um, and those are, I think, important important questions to ask and um, can really uh, highlight multiple implementation challenges. I think oftentimes instead, people are just walking in saying, oh, well, there there must be you know, reason X, Y, or Z from the CIFR, yeah. <laughs> uh, rather than considering the the broad array of methodological issues that might be at play at play in any replication. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and and adopting that, uh, I, I I agree with you. I don't know what field you know. There's the field of meta science, but that's sort of about studying science. It's sort of not taking the attitudes of replication into your actual science. I think, although I'm not a replication, <laughs> I would I'm not a meta scientist myself. But you know, I think the 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 focus on innovation and the and the sort of not taking a replicability or a replication perspective, where each new study gives us some information, also leads us to miss learning opportunities when we do get the same finding again, right? So for us to think about, okay, we 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 think we've found the same finding again. What what's the new thing we're learning? I think we're often too dismissive of that sort of how do we narrow our confidence interval or who do we learn that this works for or what what new thing did we learn i think we you know it's that old saw 
that we pay a lot more attention to the methods when we don't get what we expected than when we did. And, right. and I think taking right. the right perspective right. is we should be just, we should be interrogating everything the same way, regardless of our findings. Right. Right. Um, no, I know we don't have a ton of time, so I want to sort of um, close out with a few fun questions. Yeah. Um, what's a paper that you've led recently that you were most proud of? Mm, oh, I think, um, Probably that ripple effects paper that I mentioned earlier that we talked about. This is the website, and then the paper is Expect the Unexpected, a qualitative study of the ripple effects of children's mental health services implementation efforts. And people can go actually on that um, or look at that um, that paper and see all, what did we come up with, 66, I think, different possible ripple effects. And it's just a, it's, I think it's just a fun paper that I hope really helps, um, I guess that said, spur the conversation a little bit more. Fantastic. What's yeah. a paper of yours um, that hasn't gotten a lot of attention, but you'll yeah. forever think is criminally underappreciated by the field? Yeah. Or how about a paper that got a lot of attention, but I feel like it's criminally overappreciated. In Ooh, fact, I'm going to compare and contrast two yeah, papers. Okay. Great. So I did a paper that was just like this one-off summer paper that we had where mm -hmm. it's called Barriers to and Supports of Family Participation in a Rural System of Care for Children mm -hmm. with Serious Emotional Problems. And it's in a health journal, yeah. It's one of my highest cited papers. And it's it was a fun paper to write. I loved my colleagues that we were on there, but like we literally did qualitative interviews with I think nine people. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, is that anytime I think anyone when Google's barriers, rural mental health, this paper comes up and it's so easy to cite because you look at yeah. the abstract and that's got all everything you need in there. And then people are like, oh, see, rural mental health people, they have barriers. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And so it has just been cited a million times, probably by you know 99% of the time by people who haven't actually even read the paper, I would guess, which is really yeah. common, you know? Yeah. And then I want to contrast that with this other paper I wrote called Effects of Out-of-Home Mental Health Treatment on the Probability of Criminal Charge During the Transition to Adulthood. That paper I love and has been cited 11 times, probably 10 by me. <laughs> um, and I think it's my best paper that I've ever written. And it's yeah. completely uh, ignored. We did a beautiful longitudinal model in there where we incorporated age. We, we were basically looking at how the probability of whether or not somebody who is using mental health services uh, was in or out of juvenile justice. Mm -hmm. And we integrated these two huge administrative data sets in the state of Tennessee, their juvenile justice data set and their public mental health data set. And we found, uh, yes, out-of-home treatment actually does help prevent kids from um, going into juvenile justice, but only that during the time they're in out-of-home mental health treatment mm. and with really tiny effects, yeah. but that actually it's the opposite that going in juvenile justice, they basically getting arrested dramatically increases the chance of out-of-home treatment. Mm. And actually out-of-home treatment being used as a response to rather than a treatment of right. ju juvenile-related problems. We also found drastic differences at age 18 and 19, depending on the year, mm. uh, in terms of kids' uh, probability of being arrested, meaning actually kids are making choices after they turn 18 mm -hmm. to either be more cautious with their behavior mm. <laughs> or to engage in different behaviors. Mm -hmm. And that's not a message that I think a lot of people really want to hear, right? That if like, right. you have harsher treatments that people are going are gonna to right. offend less, but that's what we found. Um, so anyway, I thought the modeling was beautiful here. Yeah. There was tons of great. I thought it was so interesting showing the out-of-home treatment doesn't really work. But why? Yeah. So why are we doing it? Um, you, you, the finding was four years of out-of-home treatment prevents maybe one criminal charge. Yes, I mean, that's that yeah, yeah, super tiny, super yeah. tiny, right? And zero, zero attention. Yeah. Yeah, and, no, you know, that a lot of like that is our really own cool fault, study. right? I didn't package mm -hmm. the abstract in a way that made it sort of interesting for people to read. Oh, and right. we also found that uh, youth in high in, – in counties that had high proportions of BIPOC youth mm -hmm. uh, were more likely to be referred to supportive services like um, drug treatment, mm -hmm. substance use treatment. Mm -hmm. um, but if the proportion of youth, of BIPOC youth was small, there was um, a lot more racial, dis racial and ethnic disproportionality mm -hmm. going on. So if there's a small proportion of BIPOC youth, right. white youth were more likely to, were way more likely to be referred to substance use treatment. So they were being diverted out of the system, out yeah. of the juvenile justice system, while black youth were being we're diverted not. into the system or sent into the system. Again, yeah. no attention to this, but yeah. right. Right. So this is like beautiful ex example of structural racism. Yeah. 
yeah, um, yeah. In, in, in the research. Yeah. Uh, well, that's those are great answers. Um, and we will make sure that we have links to those um, papers in the show notes so that people can cite your um, really wonderful work here. Well, they'll, cite okay. the, they'll keep citing the rural one probably. Yeah. Well, because you packaged it well, right? And that's, that's how we should be writing papers is to <laughs> yeah. maximize um, the idea, maximize the um, citability of them yes. and minimize <laughs> how much people actually read them carefully. That's yes. my goal. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, for, now on for our quiz. Now, a lot of our listeners might not know, but Mike, you were really into rock climbing. So I have yeah. a quiz for you on rock climbing. I've just taken this straight off the internet. I have not fact-checked this at all. <laughs> and uh, the prize for you is going to be, well, it'll be a surprise um, for all of us because I don't know what the hell the prize is going to be. I want an out-of-office uh, uh, message. All right. All right. I had something else in mind, but yes, I will. Okay. The prize for you is um, going to be an out of office message um, generated by me. Um, okay. First, what now a lot of people may or may not know that climbs are rated or graded in terms of difficulty. Mike, what was the first rock climbing grading system ever used? Ooh, I do not know. The okay. I have multiple that. choice answers for you. Was okay. it the B scale, the UIAA scale, the Yosemite Decimal System? Or the Benish scale, B-E-N-E-S-C-H, Benish scale. Oh my goodness! I mean, I'm familiar with some of those, but I don't know which is first. I've never heard of the Benish scale, so let's go with that one. Wow! Congratulations, you are correct. The Benish nice. scale has seven levels of difficulty, with level seven being the easiest and level one being the most difficult. Oh wow! Um, that would not work named... very well because then you have to go negative. You should always know, like it should go in ascending order as people get better and better. So, you yeah. should tell that to NIH, Mike. That's why Benish should um, work. Yeah. yeah. In 1894, the Austrian mountaineer Fritz Benisch um, introduced the first known grading system for rock climbing. Um, okay, so you get 100 points for that one. Fantastic. Okay, at what point does bouldering become highballing? And if you could explain to the difference to our audience what the difference is between bouldering and highballing. Yeah, good question. Highballing is basically bouldering, so you're you're climbing without ropes, like low to the ground, and usually you have pads on the ground. But highballing is when you're climbing so high that, like, if you fall, like, you're gonna really hurt yourself or die. Um, and so it's basically there's a free, there's a fine line between highballing and free soloing. Um, I don't know that there's an official like line for highballing. How I'm many gonna feet guess, would you say? Yeah, I'm gonna guess twenty feet. All right. Now, according to the internet, I got 15 feet, okay. uh, but there was an acknowledgement that it's sort of iffy, and it is that in, that uh, difference between injury, um, and the risk of injury, and risk of death. So I'm I'm going to give you a strongly agree for that one. Congratulations, you're doing great so far. Nice. Two All out right. of two. All right. Who was the first person to free climb El Cap? Mm, oh, to free climb. Oh, that's Lynn Hill, and it's awesome too because um, she was she's she's a woman. It was just awesome. And she's short, right? There's all these things. And so I think she she now announced, it goes, boys. That's what she said. Because all these men had been trying to do it for so long. <laughs> oh, that's great. And then she went out. And then the other thing, people were like, oh, tall. It's so much better if you're taller, you know, easier to climb. And mm -hmm. she showed it wasn't. I mean, she's like 5'4 or something, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, she's incredible. She's such an awesome, awesome person. Yeah, That's a great answer. Yeah. So according to the internet, uh, while Warren Harding, along with Wayne Mary and George Whitmore, were the first ever to climb El Cap using aid techniques, and Alex Honnold was the first to free solo it. Lynn Hill was uh, El Cap's first free ascensionist. Yeah. So that's fantastic. So hang on, what's the difference between free climbing and free soloing? Yeah, free climbing, you use the rope but uh, for, to protect you in case you fall. Okay. Uh, but you never actually hang on the rope, and you never, and you don't actually pull on any gear like bolts. You're only using okay. the rock for climbing, and everything else is just for safety. Okay. Oh, very cool. Okay, I like this one. In what type type of climbing would one experience the screaming barfies? <laughs> uh, I would guess that would be ice climbing or something in really cold, like mixed climbing, where you have like your your hands on really cold rock. And why why is it called the screaming barfies? Well, I think one can figure that out. But your hands get so cold and numb, and you're just like, ugh, like it's just nasty. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. I, I forgot to rate you for the L cap. You got a thousand feet. Uh, for El Cap. I think I'm going to give you that one. Um, and I'm going to give you a very uncomfortable for um, the screaming barfies because oh, that's wow, how nice. I feel thinking about the screaming barfies. All right. Uh, what is a monkey fist in the world of rock climbing? Oh, wow. So I don't know how to tie this, but it's a type of knot and people will use that when they like 
nobody does this anymore i don't think but they'll use that i think like when they want to like when they want to throw the rope somewhere because mm-hmm. you can tie it up into this huge ball like a baseball mm-hmm. and then kind of mm-hmm. chuck the rope yeah that's perfect mike you've you've gone um i don't even know how many i've given you but you're a hundred percent on our quiz so yeah. i will record the next time you need an out of office message man this i am so really glad fantastic. this wasn't a methods or analysis uh quiz because i wouldn't have gotten anything right yeah. so i'm glad you asked me about something i know about yeah. Okay. Actually, uh, we have a bonus question. What's the difference between a sandwich estimator and a typical multi-level model? Uh, I think that a sandwich estimator you usually do around between eleven thirty and and one or one thirty uh, in the afternoon in the United um, States. Now, the sand the Spanish yeah. sandwich estimator is much later in the evening. Yeah, or that's much right. later Versus, in the afternoon. I mean, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Versus a typical multi-level model is something that you would do while playing Donkey Kong. Perfect. Wow, man. So 110%. All right. We're just about out of time, Mike. This has been fantastic. Um, to finish out, what are wh- who are some shout outs to some special people in your work or personal life that are not the difficulty here is you cannot mention Brian Weiner. <laughs> oh man, I just want yeah, I mean everyone I work with, Aaron Lyon and Eric Bruns and um um obviously not Brian Weiner and Shannon Dorsey. I love uh hanging out with you, Kevin. Yeah, all of those people. And I, de- I definitely want to give a shout out to like my early mentors. So Nancy Perrin, who was my stats teacher when I was getting my master's degree, Nancy Korloff, uh, Barbara Friesen, and uh, Craig Ann Heflinger, like they've all been really huge influences in my life and my career. Yeah. Awesome. And mention any social media where people can reach you if you want. Yeah, I'm uh, on X at That IS Podcast. And um, and then I guess I should be on Blue Sky soon because you sent me an invite, but I haven't sent you an invite code. We got to get on. All right, thanks a lot, um, folks. This has been a fantastic interview with uh, Dr. Michael Pullman from the University of Washington. Mike, thanks for coming on the podcast. I hope you'll get a chance to listen to us sometime. It's really we've gotten really good feedback. We have dozens of listeners and super fans out there. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked today's podcast, post about it on social media, like, subscribe, share it with your friends and colleagues, or ponder the unintended consequences of the fact that you just wasted an hour of your precious life listening to this show instead of doing something more productive, like watching old episodes of Webster. If you didn't like today's show, I encourage you to go engage in some highball bouldering. I'm on the social media platform formerly known as Twitter at ThatISPodcast, and Kevin is at KMKing underscore psych. All of the comments and opinions expressed during today's show are our own. They are well-reasoned and insightful, and therefore are probably not endorsed by our grant funders or employers. Thanks for listening. On behalf of Kevin King, we'll catch you next time. that again because i want to make that funnier um <laughs>